All right, you ready for this? Ready. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Nadim Yared, the CEO and president of CVRX. CVRX actually released some news this week and raised a new round of financing. If you want details, my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences here, reported on CVRX's latest round, which included a commitment from our pals at Vinsana Capital. We had Justin Klein on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago. So uh, in this conversation, which took place last month, Nadim and I talked about a few very pressing issues, not only pressing for medtech, but for the world. We talked about the pandemic and how it's impacted CVRX. We talked about the killing of George Floyd and what that means for not only CVRX, but the medtech industry. Uh, Nadim had previously been the chairman of AdvaMed. And uh, we talked with Kevin Lobo a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of Stryker and the chairman, current chair of AdvaMed, about uh, improving diversity in medtech. And Nadim had some additional thoughts, not only about how companies can do a better job, but uh, also a very interesting conversation about what we need to do more broadly as a society to uh, to improve equality. So. Nadim's a thoughtful guy, and I really do uh, appreciate his thoughts on this. Before we get into that conversation, I wanted to introduce Mira Sani. Mira is the president and CEO of Hyalix Orthopedics. Hyalix was one of the 20 medtech startups that we identified as companies to watch. This was put out by uh, our publication, Medical Design and Outsourcing. We posted the, uh, the article in this month's MDO but also had an online uh, online article that uh, went out uh, two weeks ago and uh, it's received a lot of attention. So thank you to everyone for that. And I spoke with Mira to learn a bit more about Hyalex, but also because she is going to be a panelist on the upcoming Device Talks Tuesday, where we'll talk to three startup CEOs, three of the companies from three of the companies that we chose for the 20 MedTech Startups to Watch list. And uh, we'll talk with Chris Newmark and I are going to uh, let them talk about their companies a bit. In addition to Marisani, we'll have Niket Hunt. She's the president and CEO of Candescent Biomedical. And Antoine Gunnesecker, the CEO and founder of Zito. So these are three very different, very promising medtech companies. And they all bring different stories and different perspectives as to how the sector and how, more importantly, our startups can move forward in this time. They're all uh, finding success. They're all learning ways to manage during this pandemic. So we'll, we thought this would be a very helpful conversation. We hope you'll join us. Uh, Chris Newmarker and I will be leading the conversation after the three get the opportunity to uh, introduce their companies. So please go to devicetalks.com to register for the upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. We've got some others lined up as well but we would love to uh, well we'd love to to have you on all of them it'll be a fun conversation they've all been extremely fun conversations it takes place at 4 p.m eastern time on tuesday go to devicetalks.com look for the device talks tuesdays tab and you can register it's free and it's a great conversation it's going to feel a lot like an interactive podcast 
you'll have the opportunity to ask questions of the panelists as well. So please do join us. Let's, uh, let's hear from Mira, and uh, Mira Sani will tell us about uh, Hyalix Orthopedics. Well, Mira Sani, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. So I'm eager to learn about Hyalex. I love having a, a, an interesting device company in Massachusetts. I'm in Massachusetts as well. So tell us a little bit about Hyalex's origins. Yeah, well, the technology behind Hylex um, originally came out of Stanford University and has been licensed by the company. So what we do at Hylex is we are developing a transformational synthetic cartilage technology and implant systems for use in orthopedics. And if, if you're like me and maybe a weekend warrior or maybe you've, you've turned to running um, after coronavirus <laughs> and closed your gym, you know, we're all going to need cartilage at some point. <laughs> Um, And so there's a tremendous um, unmet need uh, to improve patients' lives through addressing the problem of cartilage. It's it's known really as the holy grail of orthopedics. Sure. With a sales pitch like that, I'm not surprised you closed on on $33 last year, but we can get into the financing in a minute. Uh, Where are you in product development and where do you think this cartilage could be applied? We've, of course, seen it for the the toe and things like that. But what what are your objectives in terms of parts of the body? Great question. You know, one of the exciting things and what drew me to really join the company and um, help raise the financing is the platform nature of our approach. So really, the technology is applicable across a wide variety of joints because of its unique properties. Um, The Hylex material has the strength that can allow it to be used in large joints like the knees or the hips, as well as in the extremities, whether it's in the wrist or the toe or the shoulder. That's amazing. That's, that is uh, everywhere. (laughs) That's really impressive. So, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm happy to hear you stole some tech from Stanford and brought it east. So yay us. You you closed on a uh, a series an extended series A last year I think for thirty three million I have some really interesting investors in there. How are you fixed for for financing? Is this a an expensive endeavor you're you're undertaking? Well, I think anytime you endeavor to create permanent implants that would change the standard of care, it it could be expensive. But we're trying to make a pretty big step change in terms of the treatment algorithm for patients that suffer from cartilage disease. You know, right now we're in the preclinical phase and uh, we're getting some really exciting results. And the next big uh, step for us, which the financing uh, certainly helps with, is is our first in human um, trials. And and when do you think that might start or those might start? Um, Well, we're really fortunate that right now we are preclinical because um, of everything that's going on with the coronavirus virus pandemic. Um, oh, it's been really good to be working um, in the preclinical environment and proving out our technology in that environment. And I think we'll have good timing to be on the other side um, when we're doing our clinical. So you anticipated part of my question. Uh, one of the, the conversations we're going to have on Tuesday, and you've been uh, been gracious enough to agree to be on our Device Talks Tuesday panel of, of startup CEOs is uh, what has the impact from COVID-19 been on uh, on your company? Not having to suspend trials, I'm sure it was, a, as you said, it was, a, it was really well-timed, but what, what impact has the pandemic and all the restrictions that go along with that? What, is, what, what, is that, what has the impact been on Hyalex? 
you know, now we're several months in and, and looking back, I feel incredibly fortunate to, to actually be at a startup. Um, there's probably mm -hmm. three reasons um, that being at a startup is, is tremendously advantageous in, in this situation. Okay, in the effort to build a little suspense for the Device Talks Tuesday, I'm going to end Mirror's interview right here. We'll post the entire interview probably at a, a later date. It uh, goes on just for a, a few minutes more. But uh, you'll be able to hear the answer to that question in the three points that Mira alludes to on the upcoming Device Talks Tuesday. So again, it's free. It's a great conversation. Great way to, uh, to wrap up a Tuesday afternoon if you're on the East Coast like me or uh, to enjoy sort of a thoughtful lunch hour if you're on the West Coast or some coffee if you're somewhere in between. Anywhere you are, please join us at uh, Device Talks Tuesdays. Again, 4 p.m. on Tuesday. Go to devicetalks.com. Now we'll get into our main conversation with Nadim Uret. Again, I spoke with Nadim initially for last week's interview uh, before the pandemic. Uh, this conversation took place just a few weeks ago. Uh, we did not talk about CVRX's recent round of financing that was just announced this week, but uh, we covered a lot of ground and I thought Nadim uh, shared some really, really great insights. So now I ask Nadim Uret how the pandemic impacted CVRX. Let's listen. Uh, the pandemic impacted most, if not all companies, some negatively, some positively. And for CVRX, like most other medical devices, the first priority was the safety of our patients, our physicians, and our employees in this order. Uh, unfortunately for companies like CVRX, where we have employees relying on our devices, we need to be able to still support them and provide units to those patients. So what we did early on, starting in February 28, and we may have been one of the first companies to start establishing strict access to our facility to minimize impact on our ability to produce the devices. And by March 11, we limited access to our facility only to the a very small select group of operators and engineers who are required to build the units that patients would need. That said, uh, over the height of the crisis, as well as you've heard, most mm -hmm. procedures were delayed to allow room in hospitals, you know, in ICUs and CCUs for uh, the severe cases. So, of course, we tried to delay our uh, activities, only limiting those to the patients who already have the device and need it. And uh, late in uh, May, we started again now offering the device commercially to, patient, to new patients. So uh, the impact on us has been twofold. On one hand, uh, commercially, we delayed most of the activities in Europe and in the United States for approximately two months. Uh, different levels in different countries, obviously. Germany was one of the first to reopen up for us. Uh, the second is on the clinical trial side. Uh, luckily for us, we were almost completed with the enrollment of the trial. So we focused all of the efforts on ensuring that all of the follow-ups that the patients required were being done with their safety in mind. So we discussed this with FDA early on and we agreed to make changes to allow some of those follow-ups to happen online over the phone or video conference. So we try to simplify that so as much as possible. Your your patient base, your heart failure patients. I mean, that's it's hardly an elective procedure if you're if you're suffering from that. How did your 
patients um, manage themselves during the pandemic? I mean, did they did they get themselves in the hospital and get the help they needed, or were they did they stay away? We've heard from others, other suppliers who sadly lost patients they knew were in line to get one of their procedures because they stayed away, and unfortunately their condition was so dire they they, they passed away. Uh, did you? see any sort of uh, impact on your on your patient base, your potential customer base? Or did people come in because this is clearly a procedure that they that they can elect not to have? Well, raising a very interesting question here, Tom. Is this an elective procedure or not? Uh, if you think about it in absolute, it is not an elective procedure. However, from the timeliness of it, the time... Uh, or a delay could be seen as an elective, meaning a patient could be delayed by a month or two since this is a chronic progressive disease that goes sometimes slow, slowly in some patients, you know, over the next three to five years. Uh, delaying a month or two could be seen, uh, you know, could, could be considered without any uh, negative effect. On the other hand, patients with heart failure are known to have the other comorbidity that could make them at risk with COVID, right? So you're balancing the act and we are not physicians at CVRX. So all we are saying in here is we relied on the advice of the physicians taking care of their patients. Mm -hmm. So if a hospital says we need to do this, we're here to support the hospital, the physician and the patient but we're not pushing in any way to get patients, you know, taking additional risks to go to the hospital. So that was at the height of the pandemic. Nowadays, in some geographies, you know, it's again, geography, it's a geography by geography. Uh, you will see some statistics that even some hospitalizations of heart failure patients were delayed or not even happening. So for example, a congestive event that in a normal day would require a patient to go to the hospital to get an injection of a diuretic. May have not happened. And unfortunately in some situations we have heard of some patients passing away mm -hmm. because of that. So there, there is no winning in this. There, is, uh, there are no tough, uh, hard rules. You can say you wanna keep the patient safe, keep them at home, but then you see the number of stemmies skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. And then you say, no, 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 let's bring those patients to the hospital. And then those patients have comorbid diseases. So what do you do? So yeah, it's, it has been, been gut-wrenching, those decisions that physicians and hospitals had to make and the physicians and the patients and their families too. Has your sales force had to change uh, how it's approaching the hospitals? Is it, is it being allowed back? Are your reps being allowed back in? Do they need to be in during the procedures? What, what has changed, if anything, over over the past four months? Uh, the most obvious change has been the elimination of sales calls just to do sales calls. So right, these are happening right now on the phone, Zoom, telephone call, but not a face-to-face visit with a physician. We're trying to minimize the impact, not only on our sales rep, but also on the physician, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that is, you have to think about it always from two sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yes, you are correct. In a case, in a procedure, our rep is required to be there. Uh, for follow-ups, we tried most of the follow-ups to support them remotely as much as possible. But if not, our reps, and kudos to all of our reps, they were all ready 
to brace the risk, you know, and, and go and do what, it, what, what they need to do here to ensure that patients are being served properly. Uh, but yeah, it has it had some impact. Um, absolutely, less less face to faces, less visits to the hospital, and only when it's needed. In terms of PPE, uh, um, you, you know, a couple of months ago we were struggling to get access uh, to protective equipments for our employees. We're still struggling to get enough protective equipment to some of the nurses. Who are caring for the patients. So what we have decided at CVRX is to provide KN95 masks and other gear to our employees who are going to hospitals to use to get to the hospital or cross the lobby of the hospital. Once they go to the surgical theater, hospitals do provide PPEs to all of mm -hmm. the people in the OR, right? That's the, you know, that's the safe thing to do. But getting there, we provided some PPEs. And to that extent, when we were struggling to get access to those, even KN95s, uh, Ivermet stepped in and uh, they created a type of a purchase group for smaller companies like CVRX so that we can pool our demand and have now a sizable demand that can attract the attention of a large manufacturer of the you know personal protective equipment oh, that's to get so Avramed did the service and now it's live and available to all of the members of Avramed and kudos to them for doing this not only from a price perspective it's access mm -hmm. it is access you know getting when 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 you're when you know you're the uh, size of a metronic you don't have much issue of getting the attention of manufacturers of PPE, but when you are CVRX, you do. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's where Advermed stepped in to help. Good to have friends. Speaking of, of Advermed and, and Scott Whitaker, I spoke with him on an earlier podcast just about how MedTech uh, was perceived during the pandemic and whether or not it was treated fairly. You're coming into this, you had, just, you had been chair just previously. Uh, how did you feel that the sector was was treated uh, by by the politicians, by the president, during uh, during the pandemic, uh, Tom, I I I I don't care much about you know being mistreated by politicians and media. We, it's our job. We'll always be criticized one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Our focus during the pandemic uh, and under the leadership of Scott Whitaker and Kevin Lobo, the actual chairman, was to ensure that uh, particularly the diagnostic manufacturers. We're up there being serviced. The, the, what, you know, it's, it's hard to explain all of the details, but even to produce a swab to do a test, and it's a couple of cents swab, but if the only manufacturer is based out of Milan or in Wuhan, and you are in middle of March, you have, you have, you have an issue of supply chain. Mm -hmm not of having people in your manufacturing facility to produce those diagnostic tests, but to get the material running. Uh, but kudos to our industry, we were able to ramp up the manufacturing, particularly of respirators and ventilators early on in some areas by 10X. Um, and we had a call and we still do, we have a call right now every Monday afternoon uh, with Advermed, uh, it's the main uh, large company CEOs, actually 
the board of Hypermed basically and many small company CEOs are on the call as well. In few instances, we had the commissioner of FDA and the secretary of human and health services joining us as well when they had uh, things to ask us to, you know, to do. Uh, so it was hands-on for everybody. Uh, I believe our industry rose to the challenge. Uh, of course, we're never satisfied. Of course, we want to do more mm -hmm. next time around. Um, and seriously, I, I, don't, I don't care if we're criticized or not. I care about providing those equipments and diagnostics to patients who need them. That's a, the, the right answer and a good answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> we talked with Kevin Lobo about uh, his push to make diversity a priority, uh, both in MedTech and at AdvaMed and at Stryker. Uh, we've all, I think, had a lot of reason to look inward uh, since the, the killing of George Floyd, including the medtech industry. Many CEOs put out statements following that. Many are based in Minnesota, including CVRX. Uh, what uh, was your response to the killing and, and the, and the follow-up after that? And what does medtech need to do? Well, first question, I guess, is how do you think medtech has done in terms of advancing diversity in our workforce? And then what do we need to do going forward? Uh, great question, uh, Tom. Uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Lobo, the CEO of Stryker, who is actually the actual chairman of Adamed, has positioned inclusion and diversity at the core of his chairmanship for the two years. And we created an effort within Adamed called Adamed Advance to actually advance inclusion and diversity among our employer employees uh, in, uh, across the industry. Uh, so as you know, our industry employs well, it pays well. It's a phenomenal group of people who work in our industry and those who don't know it. Once you join the industry, you get to know how incredible it is to work as part of the industry. And we wanted to ensure that that privilege of working for the medtech industries is inclusive to women. You know, so irrespective of gender, irrespective of race or national background, uh, and Kevin has been the champion of this. Uh, we have also uh, Martha Shaden, the chairwoman of Avamed Excel, who's also chairing that effort with uh, Jen Brary uh, from Avamed. And it's been, they've been doing a phenomenal job raising the awareness. But that's on the employee side. And we need to do more. We need to accelerate this. And Kevin jumped on this right now to try to put this under the accelerator rep. My take on this is we should do more as an industry. Not only in, in terms of the workforce working within our industry directly, but also a supplier base. We need also to propagate and radiate that same mm -hmm. sentiment to our customers, to hospitals. But more importantly, I think we have a voice and a role to play in how healthcare is delivered and how people have access to healthcare. So there is a big question mark that we need to ask ourselves. Can we get equal justice without equal access to healthcare? And if whatever the answer to that question is, the next question is, all right, what is the role of the medtech industry in this dialogue and in this discussion and how do we participate, be part of the solution? rather than just say, you know, not access is not ours, it's for payers or others, right? So that's going to be, I think, the next challenge for our industry over the next couple of years, try to figure out how do we take the inclusion and diversity that we are implementing internally 
for our employers, employees, how do we take this to patients? Is that something that's being discussed? Is there a, a plan being put into place that we may see rolled out in a year or two, or is it still at the... You're, you're... This is Nadim Yared speaking. That's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm seriously, I raise this and I will keep raising this. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a difficult platform. Uh, of course, it could be seen as politically charged. Mm-hmm. Every time you talk about access, whether you're talking about access to justice or access to healthcare, uh, politically charged. So how do we navigate this as an industry without excluding anybody? Um, very difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. will, we, will we have a voice as an industry to play when you talk about access? Again, very difficult. So this, these are the opinions of Nadim Yared, not of Hypermet. <laughs> I need to clarify this, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think that's a, a great perspective because I do think pharma and, and medtech are often seen as opponents to any sort of broader availability of healthcare. So it would be an interesting repositioning to, to have that be part of our broader discussion as an industry. Yes. And I don't know where that impression comes from because, um, you know, under the ACA, the Accountable Care Act, right, uh, we were always proponent of the access component of it. We were against the medical device tax component mm-hmm. of that, if you recall. And any time we criticized the tax, we always spoke against uh, or at least for access, that we are for patient access to healthcare. Uh, but the perception is out there. I, I hear you. Excellent. Well, <laughs> and Tom, uh, you asked as well the question, what should companies do in, yes. in, in this topic and what has CVRX done? Uh, we are a small company. We are a small employer. Uh, but it's, um, it's like the canary in the mine, right? So that's where you see some of the problems starting up and that's where uh, you should start focusing the effort. Uh, at CVRX, we don't believe we have the issue, but it's a big but in here. Anytime we say we don't have an issue, it means we're not maybe digging deep enough. So the first action, action that we've taken is uh, add some language, some very strong worded language in our employee handbook. And we are circulating that right now for signature. Uh, one, one very specific example. Uh, w- and it's, it's a, definitely a controversial one. So the question is, can someone be violent in their words outside of work, but yet when they are at work, be seen as embracing the culture that we want to embrace at CVRX? And it's a difficult question because once you're outside of work, you're a personal private citizen. Mm-hmm. And are we policing the thought? Are we policing the language or not, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you're inciting violence outside of work, can you still, be, can you still show up at CVRX and embrace the CVRX culture of, of inclusion? And it, it's a difficult one. So we added a very strong worded language in our employee handbook that will make employees sign. And asking them not to. Was, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's but... a simple, simple change. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, asking them not to, to, I guess, advising them that their language is, is important and meaningful, both in and outside that of the workplace. Language. Yeah, yeah, that acts and language as mm-hmm. private citizens is important. Mm-hmm. And more than important, we'll take it into account. It's, it's a fine line. It's a slippery yeah. slope. But at the same time, you know, we, we can't ignore what, is, what has been happening over the past few weeks. Um, the, the second... Uh, 
elements in here uh, is in regard to selection of recruiters. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, a hiring manager would look at the candidates in their slate to make a choice and they will pick the best candidates for the job every single time. That's their job, right? A hiring manager should pick the best candidates of a slate. But are we ensuring that the slate of candidates presented to a hiring manager is inclusive? Mm -hmm. How do we do this? What are the questions, you know, who are the recruiters that are doing the extra job to ensure that our hiring managers are seeing the full picture and not only a sliver of the picture? So that is going to be a multi-year process because uh, I don't think recruiters are wired this way or mm -hmm. structured that way. And uh, it'll be interesting how, uh, how this will evolve. In the, in the, but for now, I'm making sure that every recruiter hears this language from me personally and that they know that their slates will be scrutinized. And if the slate is not inclusive or at least perceived as being not inclusive, we will not be working with this recruiter anymore. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I've talked with recruiters who in reverse say that they present a diverse slate, but more often than not, the candidate who represents that diversity is not chosen. So it's an interesting conversation and dialogue, I think, for hires and recruiters to have. Absolutely. To ensure you're all on the same page. Absolutely, yes. And it's on all of us. It's not only on few of us. We cannot yeah. just delegate the job to somebody else. Final question. I was listening to the part, to the interview we did. You had, uh, you had expressed that when you first entered the workforce, you were from Lebanon, you were in France. The defense was, the defense industry was an obvious choice for you, but uh, you didn't feel necessarily welcome there or that you would have had a role there and you found that role in medtech. I'm just curious as to how you have felt coming into the medtech workforce. Have you felt as an outsider? Have you felt always included? What, what has the experience been like for you? Yeah, Tom, yeah. great question. Uh, and I've always felt included. Now, so I've got the accent, I've got the background, I've got the nationality hurdle when I you know, arrived to the United States. Um, I did not have mm -hmm. uh, the skin color issue. Uh, by, by issue, I'm saying, um, you know, the fact that I'm white, even though I'm Lebanese, Arab, you know, whatever you want to call it, I'm still a white. So I, I cannot relate uh, to the way I've been treated or we cannot compare it right, to the racial issues that we're seeing. Uh, uh, but that said, uh, as a Lebanese coming in with a strong accent, with, you know, making uh, my studies in mm -hmm. universities that very few have heard of here in the United States, I felt very welcome. Uh, there were some cultural challenges for me, how to handle conflict, crisis, mm -hmm. argumentation in meetings, etc. But that was on me to try to learn the American culture and not the other way around. Uh, listen, it, when, when you think about it, somebody with my name, with my background, being a CEO of a small company, nothing works, right? Nothing is giving me a, a wind in my sails, let's say. Yet I became the chairman. I was elected unanimously to be the chairman of our industry, the chairman of Ibermet for mm -hmm. two years. That speaks volume about our industry and who we are. Excellent point. Great.
Well, I'm glad we reconnected and I'm extremely glad to get your, your thoughts on these very important issues. Thanks again for taking the time. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate these questions. You're always tough, but I love it. Thank you. Okay, well, that is a wrap. Thanks again to everyone for joining us on this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thank you to Nadim Ured and Mirasani for uh, for being interviewed. We hope you have subscribed to this podcast. If you haven't, uh, please do so. Just push the, push the subscribe button and these future podcasts will be sent directly to you. You'll be also have an easier time finding past podcasts as well. Please share these episodes on social media. That's a great help. If you do so, you can tag me. I am on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can also tag my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, our co-host. Chris is on LinkedIn and he is on Twitter. On Twitter, he is known as at Newmarker, as in a new marker. You can reach us both via email. My email is T Salemi. Chris's starts with C Newmarker, and they both end with at WTWHmedia.com. Well, thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly podcast. Please, again, don't forget to uh, join us on Tuesday for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays and future Device Talks Tuesdays programs. We have some great conversations coming up that uh, I'm sure you'll want to be part of. They'll be educational, informational, and a whole lot of fun, I promise. So uh, go to devicetalks.com to register for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. Tune in next week for another episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. And as Chris Newmarker always advises, please stay safe. All right, all right. I changed my mind. I will play the rest of uh, Mirasani's interview. This is the answer to my question about the challenges startups have in running during a pandemic. Let's listen. You know, now we're several months in, and and looking back, I feel incredibly fortunate to to actually be at a startup. There's probably mm -hmm. three reasons that being at a startup is is tremendously advantageous in in this situation. So the first is that startups compete by being nimble. So we have flexible processes, the arteries are not hardened yet of the organization, and we can adjust quickly to changes in the environment. Um, second is by nature, we have an, a team of innovators. We have multi-sport athletes who are ambidextrous thinkers, and we have people that naturally solve problems that are unsolved every day. That's part of their job, you know, in creating a new synthetic cartilage to be used in, in joints. So in some ways, this environment isn't new for them. And so they, our team has just been amazing at adapting to these changes and rolling with the punches and just finding new ways to address whether it's a supply chain challenge or whether it's the hours of work or the way that we need to work remotely, the team has been fantastic. And then the third, I'll say the third advantage is for us at least, um, perhaps, um, although I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek, is that there's no distraction of revenue. Um, we don't have to worry about any lost revenue since we're pre-revenue. So we've got that going for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good it, it doesn't it doesn't impact our um, us in that way. Now obviously we plan to have revenue in the future, but um, but that's a little ways away, um, given the regulated nature of our products. Sure. Oh, that's a great point. It's it's very rare when you can turn not having product in, in humans and not having revenue into positive. So so good for you <laughs> for, for, for doing that. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about Hylex on uh, Device Talks Tuesdays. And uh, thank you for uh, taking some time to be on the podcast.
Thanks, Tom. I'm really looking forward to it.